Hi, this is Danielle from the Jaws Curator, and this is episode 131 of Art for Your Ear. This episode is supported by Saatchi Art, the world's largest curated online gallery offering original art by independent artists from around the world. Visit them online at saatchiart.com. And being that this is the first Saturday of the month, this episode is also supported by Thrive. Thrive is a group based in Vancouver who has an amazing mastermind program for artists all around the world. Each mastermind group is made up of 10 women who meet every month, either in person in Vancouver and Victoria, or online for everywhere else, to talk about the ups and downs of being artists. If you are looking for that kind of support and accountability, head to their website, thriveartstudio.com. Okay, so supported by Saatchi Art and Thrive Mastermind and hosted by Club Quench. Yep, hosted. This episode was recorded live when I was in Victoria, British Columbia a couple of weekends ago. The lovely people of Quench opened their gorgeous space to a live audience, served all of us treats and coffee, and then Canadian ceramics artist Susanna Montague and I interviewed each other. We had an amazing time, and because of that, there is now a giant post on my site, thejealouscurator.com, which you have to visit because Susanna's work is so detailed and so beautifully bizarre that if you don't go and look at what we're talking about, you're going to think that we're both a little bit crazy. Oh, and speaking of crazy, I think I said that about 500 times during the episode, so feel free to put a little Baileys in your coffee and um, turn it into a drinking game. All right, so let's get on with the interview off. Susanna's up first, and her eight-year-old twins were sitting just off to the side to fill in any blanks, uh, traveling back in time to Club Quench in Victoria, British Columbia. Thank you all for coming. I'm always interested to see that it's always women, so I'm really glad that we've got a dashing twin. <laughs> This is Club Quench. This has been a vision of mine for a long time. It's a collaborative workspace, but really what it is is a club. So it's a club where people can feel like they belong to something, that they're seen, and that they're part of something. Um, a big part of what we do are events, as well as, as well as as collaborative workspace. And I'll tell you a little bit about why these two are here. Obviously, you um, all know Danielle. I think there's some of you there that were at the crush, girl crush yesterday. Mm-hmm. How many of you? One, two, three. Okay. Um, Jealous curator. One of our first quench events was done with Danielle, and it was a sellout within a week. It wasn't during spring break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing event. It was just as you brought out your book. Yeah. Um, the Creative Unlock. Yeah, that, right? was a, that was a long time that ago. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That was the first quench event. Um, and so I thought I would tag on to Andrea bringing Danielle to Victoria and get her in here for another event. And I was trying to think of something different to do. And so um, I remembered this sassy little girl that I had met on the beach one day. She's right over there. <laughs> <laughs> and her and I were walking along the beach and our dogs were talking together and we got talking and then about... You know, ten minutes after her and I were walking along, her mum came down. And then the mum and I spoke for probably nearly an hour and a half. <laughs> we walked up and down Gonzalez Beach a lot. Um, and yeah, and so since then I've followed uh, Susanna's work and it's incredible. I mean, the, the cigarette out of the baby's mouth, how can you not find that adorable? Um, <laughs> 
And she's just an amazing woman. And I thought it'd be really great to have these two sort of interview each other because me as a visual artist is not very good. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate what you both do, especially uh, Danielle's art too, with all the, have you seen the collages where she does the splashes and it's got Lizzie in it? I've got yeah. Liz. I've seen for Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Who doesn't? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so without further, further ado, I gave them some instructions, which was I wanted them to sort of, you know, face off and interview each other. And then if you guys have questions, I'm sure that you'd be fine if we uh, raise your hand. And I know these guys are filming it and they will be taking some um, audio so Danielle can put on her podcast as well. And uh, yeah, so let me turn the music off. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yay, well, thanks for coming, everybody. And yeah, I'm going to make this, I, I've always wanted to have Suzanne on my podcast anyway, so this is just going to be the episode that I have with her, and then the Q&A can be you guys asking the questions, so you can be on the podcast too. Um, so we were trying to figure out a way to do this that's not all over the place, so I think I'm going to kind of interview Susanna first, and then she's going to ask me stuff. Does that make sense? Otherwise, I think we'll be all over the map. Okay, ready? I have my podcast list. Okay, okay. <laughs> so... Hi. Hi. Um, on my podcast, I always like to kind of do the artist's life chronologically because that was what I found when I studied art history. You just get the highlights of the artist, right? You don't get the nitty-gritty, like, I want to know all the stuff. And I like to hear about what they were like as kids and then um, did they go to art school? Did they not? Are they self-taught? How did they get to doing the work that they're doing now? So... She's not dead yet, you know, art, art history books are all dead, you can't go back and ask more questions, so we get to ask them all right now. So you guys, if there's things I miss, then you can jump in and ask her at the end. So, what were you like as a kid? Were you, <laughs> were you, were you artsy, were you like sculpting things then, were you painting, or none of it? Um, I was an arty kid. It, it, art kind of saved my bacon when I was little, because I got thrown into a girl's private school, which was really strict. and severe, like you'd get the strap if you did something wrong, and um, I was dyslexic, so I wasn't excelling academically, but I could do art, and I pulled that off, and so I would enter the competitions there and do well, and it kind and were of... you doing everything, like sort of painting, photography? I was doing sculpture back then. Oh, you were? I, yeah. One major competition I won, I was doing something similar to what I do now, which is just this weird sculpted ball, which I think is pretty bizarre for, uh, I was eight. And <laughs> this weird sculpted ball with these things flying out the top of it, and it was conceptual, and my teachers really liked it. So, <laughs> and I think that's not so different from the work that's still coming out of me somehow. And so when you graduated, did you go to art school? No, I waited a while. I tried to have a normal life and make some money. Yeah, um, <laughs> money's good. And then I went, I went to Emily Carr part-time because I was scared to go. I thought everyone there was so cool. I couldn't handle even trying. Um, I used to see them all sitting outside the school and smoking. And <laughs> okay, first, cool. first I it have to learn how to smoke. Cool. I couldn't even walk on the same side of the street as them. I had to cross over because they were way too cool for me. Um, but so I went part time at night, and then I got my portfolio together that way. And the teachers started telling me, like, you got to apply full time, you got to go. So what I did is I 
started in sculpture because I knew I liked working three-dimensionally, which is something that dyslexic people can do pretty well in. And um, so as I was in sculpture, I realized I loved clay, like just passionate about clay, and I knew I wanted to stay there. So I kept in the sculpture department so I could learn all my mediums, like resin, metal, wood, and I'd squeak into ceramics and work and hang out with the cool people in ceramics because I loved ceramic people. They're so friendly and sweet and funny. That's what I hear from every ceramics person I talk to. They always say that they were in something else, but they'd walk past the ceramics studio and everybody in there was so nice and they would just go and hang out in there. And before they knew it, they were ceramics students. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely the best department. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you just threw in about dyslexia. So are you dyslexic? Yeah. Oh, and so is that part of the, like, did you struggle in school then? Like, was that also part of why the art department seemed like a nicer place to hang out? Um, I, I actually did really well in Emily Carr, even in my art history, and I think it was just I just was so excited about being there. Like, I overcame it when mm -hmm. I really had to put my to it I could pull it off mm -hmm. but in other areas in high school and stuff I with math and everything it was pretty of a struggle but I got to throw in here right now <laughs> we have a dyslexics that, that they're actually being headhunted right now for major tech companies because we think outside the box and, <laughs> and, and yeah like Leonardo da Vinci Steve Jobs who else Jamie um, Oliver Jamie yeah Jamie Richard Oliver Branson. Picasso Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> oh, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so you graduate. Oh, I should say, sorry. I uh, before I graduated, I wanted to study anatomy and figurative sculpture, learn the the bones, the muscles, and the skin on top. Like, and Emily Carr wasn't teaching that at the time. Fig the figure was dead in art. So I. Did I went to Ontario College of Art and s learned figurative sculpture there, and I felt like that was a foundation I needed. Even if I was to go abstract, I wanted the basics. So I got through that year in at Ontario College of Art and Design, or it was it's now the university, mm -hmm. and that was the last year they taught it. And the dean there, when I got there, said the figure's dead in art. Wait, thinking, what year was that? Oh gosh, early nineties. Yeah, and I was like, what have I done? I just up. <laughs> my whole life and moved over here and want to study something that's dead in art. But anyway, I pursued and got through it. And, and it actually turned out to be a great training because I got into the sculpture department in film because I have uh, an anatomy training. Like the, that They need that in film. They need us to body cast and replicate bodies. And it's a, quite a technical area. So did you come back here then? And then I came back and graduated from Emily Carr. Oh, okay. Yeah. So was that part of, like, could you do that through Emily Carr, go yeah, and do that year? you could apply. If there was something oh, specific cool. you wanted training in in your field, you could go to another school if they offered it and Emily Carr didn't. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you came back, you graduate. Are you working in sculpture right away, or did you have day jobs to, how, like, what did you do? As soon as I graduated? Yeah. Um, I, got an, um, I got into um, BC Ceramics Gallery, um, chose me as... Like this, so one of the top BC ceramicists to work in their studios behind their gallery, and they gave me studio space and massive kilns, and I worked there for a year, and that was my first like professional ceramic studio on my own. Um, 
Well, I mean, there was other artists there, but I got to run the whole studio myself where I was, and uh, that was a good kickstart. And then after that, I got into the core, which is um, it's the first um, artist co-op in Canada. So I was part of the pilot project. It's in the downtown east side, and it's live workspace for artists. So they have studio wow. space, 8,000 square feet of studio space shared for photographers, dance floor, wood shop, metal shop, ceramic, everything there. It's phenomenal. So 30 artists live and work there, and um, everybody should apply. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was your work like back then? Like, what were you doing? Was it anything like what you're doing now? Um, it's interesting because back when I was doing ceramic sculpture, there was no ceramic conceptual ceramic sculpture, it was teapots. And <laughs> I knew that the, it, what things were changing a little bit. So I was part of this committee that hired a new head of ceramics. And um, it didn't affect me personally, but I knew the students coming after me would um, benefit if we could bring in somebody that could think, am I getting myself in trouble saying this? But he, he, he yeah, revolutionized the ceramic department at Emily Carr. And he's still there, and I went and met him three months ago. And uh, just amazing department there. It's huge now at the new school. Do you ever teach? I teach, um, I just taught a workshop at Seymour Art Gallery. I have a show up there right now. It's a solo show. And so I did a workshop sort of, like a springboard from what Danielle talks about with your inner critic. It was um, inspired by Tara, who's um, one of the founding members of Thrive Art Studios. Does anybody know about Thrive? It's amazing. Um, we, we could talk about that later. If you want. But um, Tara talked about her inner meanie cat, and the nicest thing she said is, you be nice to your inner meanie cat. So I thought <laughs> we could make us a clay talisman of our inner meanie cats, or inner awesome cat, as uh, Jamie would call it, yeah. and put it on the wall of your creative space and talk back to it. If it's talking to you, you talk back and tell it to go have some tea or something. <laughs> well, well, you That's get on very and nice. do the important That's not what I would say. <laughs> yeah, so that was, I taught that, and I teach at my kids' school. We live on Bowen Island, so... We have clay there. There used to be a brick factory, two brick factories there. So we dug up the clay and processed it with the kids. And we did a big installation with them. And I just wanted them to know that if they ever got stuck, they could make a pot. Just dig it up and wire it. Pretty cool. Um, so do you have the whole setup at home then? Like you own yeah. like the whole thing? Yeah, my husband and I um, moved from Vancouver to Bowen Island so we could have the studio beside our house. Because I, at the time, we were trying to make kids happen, and we did. Voila, <laughs> my twins. It wasn't that easy, but uh, of course, um, I wanted to be close to them, so I, I didn't want to bring them into the downtown east side. And so, um, we bought Barney Bentall's house. He's a Canadian musician, so the studio was a two-car garage, and it was all set up with power for kilns, so for insurance and things. This was perfect. And then above that is a coach house, which we transformed into a gallery space. And um, it works really, really well. I'm really happy there. It's a sort of dream. Well, it's a bit isolating. It's not that fabulous. Like, I miss my downtown east side friends and designers and film people. But it, everywhere you move, there's a compromise. But that works really well for our life at the moment. And um, I must say, being in the tranquility of the forest and the big open sky, we're on the top of a hill, it's really helpful to get my brain into the right place every day to work and create and think outside the box. 
Well, and it seems like you do that 24-7 because I follow you on Instagram and you are never not in the middle of like 5,000 things. And then you have twins. How old are you guys? Eight. You have eight-year-old twins. And you have, like, when, when do you sleep? I, I sleep, I have to sleep. <laughs> I, I, I just, um, I think my film background really helps me produce quite efficiently. Like, I used to have bosses standing over me going, yeah, you know, time is money, walk away. And I, I didn't want to because I wanted to perfect everything. And you just can't. See, so that, I keep that in the back of my mind. Just, it's good. It's good enough. Walk away. Hmm. Okay, so we kind of skipped over that. So oh. what were you doing in the film industry? Doing sculpture. Yeah, I got in as props. So we made guns and explosives and everything that the actor holds. And so... Wow. Um, I have my firearms license because we had to handle real guns. We would take them apart, rebuild them, redesign them. Um, machine guns, AK-47s, armor for horses, anything like sort of combative. We'd have to transform it into something soft because the actors can't get hurt. So we'd make, say, say in X-Men, Wolverine had to fall on some rocks. We had to make all the rocks out of foam. Oh, Hugh. So we literally would go out. What a to wimp. Like, Come on, Hugh. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is crazy. Um, okay, so then you decide that you're going to have babies. Get out of the movie biz. I had to get out of the movie biz because, um, because we did fertility in every cycle. Every time I had babies put, like eggs put in me, I couldn't be around the chemicals. So in film, we use lots of chemicals. To, to get everything to catalyze fast. So it's really toxic. So it was cycle after cycle of, like, can't work, or back on another movie, can't work. And so in the end, I was just, like, moving to Bowen, too. I would never see my kids. It, it's uh, six out, six days a week and yeah, long, long days. So. But it's really helped me now because I know how to take molds quickly. I can make the molds fast. I can push put a piece together really um, effectively if I need to and yeah it's it's gotten me out of like doing the pretty thing it's just envision it build it make it happen well, so when you were in, you know working all those crazy hours were you doing any of your own art on the side or did you not yeah. oh you did they were amazing I got a Canada Council grant to build um, the first Blastasis series and I was working a lot with the body and technology and I could say like I'm in the middle of a sculpture I can't start this week I gotta start two weeks from now and they're like okay Wow. They were really excellent. But, you know, when I got on the set it, or on in the studios, it was like hit the ground running. You got to go. Um, and so, well, okay, so that's a good segue into the work that you're sort of doing now. What are they called? Blastocysts or blastocytes? Blastocysts is a five-day-old embryo. That's when they transfer it into your body. Um, and they kind of look all, like, bubbly. Bubble, yeah, yeah, bubbles. And so that's what your work... Now, so I assume that came from going through IVF. Yeah, I was getting the embryos transferred into me once, and um, I was looking up at the walls, and the doctor had all these posters up, these beautiful blastocysts. Unfortunately, I was able to like get out of my situation because it's quite painful, and look up at the walls and think, I'd like to make a sculpture of those. And, and so you were doing that before these guys were even born. Then, mm -hmm. like, wow. Well, um, we, yeah. And so, and you're still going now, and so they've obviously evolved. And so as, so when you 
do get pregnant and now you're going to have these guys did the work could you actually work when you were pregnant um i could um I remember feeling like it was really uncomfortable sitting with twins, like it just pushed down. <laughs> so I had to do short segments or change how I worked. I would have a higher chair or I painted with acrylics at that time because found the clay was just, it was too uncomfortable. Well, and then glazes and stuff like that. Yeah, I use non-toxic glazes now, okay. um, but the dust, the silica and the clay and the dust is really bad for you. And sometimes when we're pushing for um, a deadline, I will spray the glazes and that's not very good either, but... <laughs> um, and so, yeah, okay, now where, here's a baby devil, mm -hmm. smoking. that's smoking, um, here's a, like a beheaded donkey mm -hmm. over here, um, a little skull, where, Susanna, where do these things come from? Um, well, I, I use a lot of references from the Vanitas art, the Flemish still life paintings, so there's symbolism in all the work, and often it's skulls, fading flowers, um, rotten fruit, bubbles. And um, it's me just sort of having a contemporary take on that in the inevitability of death, but more like enjoy now, because you just don't know. And that's what I like to reference in the work. But um, I also am talking about the old techniques used in the factories for building ceramics that are all shutting down now. So you'll see a, a lot of like the blue Delftware here, nods to, you know, the old, these are all vintage decals that are used in this work that are, you just can't find anymore. I cut them up and put them on and press molding and slip casting, all these old techniques that uh, even dipping lace into porcelain, the, those Dresden dolls that they use or the mason porcelain characters figurative work so it's mm -hmm. i just trying to keep it alive in an artistic contemporary way mm -hmm. and yeah and there's something really i love that when when ceramicists or anybody actually will like nod to the past because i think you can't i think you need to know all of that yeah in order to know what you're doing and to know where to push the medium forward right yeah it's kind of cool to know the background and so we don't obviously have them here, but I'm going to do a great big post on my site that goes with this podcast episode, but your ghosts that are at Seymour right now are crazy. They're like, are they your kids' legs? Yeah, I... I, I um, they're like this big, these ghosts with... They're crazy. Were you guys the legs? Oh, boy. There, there's pictures on my Instagram. I was trying to cast these little guys. It, it was harsh for them because the weight of the of the plaster on their legs was weighing them down. But, um, <laughs> we did it, didn't we, boo-boos? You have to do it for art. Yes, you, yeah, you have to do it for the bodies. love of art. And I was trying to try to draw a parallel up with my kids and art and in, in absorbing what you see in your environment and what, what matters to you and making something truly authentic, which is what I care about is my kids. And here they are. I've made them into... Pottery. And I actually put the, the blue Delftware decals on them, on their legs and their hands, and I don't exactly know why I did all that, but it's there. And, and the breath coming out was actually a discussion I had with Mike from Madrona Gallery. He was like, I just see something coming out the mouth. And somehow it, I think you said breath or something, yeah. or smoke or something. So I just turned it into the 
um, it's translated from the exploding head dolls that I do with all the Vanitas work coming out. It's extremely, insanely detailed. You might have to look at some pictures, but it it's worked. insane. It, I will just tell it's you. It's still standing there in the gallery. It hasn't fallen or anything. How, when does that show up until? Um, April 14th. April 14th. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a talk there too next week, I think. Just check with your yeah, when is her talk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and where did the ghost idea come from? Sort of the same idea of the... Yeah, of the... Of the um, why I ha always have this sort of spooky, eerie element to my work. And um, it was actually a technical thing, too. I didn't want to put my kids through too much more body casting. However, I would have if I could have. But <laughs> I, I got a mannequin that was the same size as them and draped the or the clay as fabric over the mannequin so I could join that later. So it was actually built in sections because it wouldn't fit in my kiln. So the legs are one part in my kiln. The top is another, like the ghost part is another section. The arms are separate. And then I had to put it all together. And the breath is all... I put it all together at the gallery and just right before the curator was going to kill me. But it And it worked. all worked. It worked. I, had I saw that on Instagram that you were like, it worked. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's so stressful. Does that stress you out or do, are you kind of like... It did. I was, my husband was there. He really helped me. I was just sitting there going, I'm so stressed out. <laughs> I, like, I wasn't going to have a meltdown or anything, but I was just starting to get sick and I could feel like my body was shaking. I'm trying to wire these detailed little bits together, but we pulled it off. I was saving this for the not so speedy speed round, but I, I want to ask you right now. Because I know, I, I mean, I've never done ceramics, but I've talked to enough people that do, where you kind of can't be precious because you can put it in, a kiln, in the kiln and it, it can explode. Yeah. Like there's, there's, you have to be okay with the fact that this might just break. So when you're working on something like that, that's huge for a deadline, are you kind of freaking out when you put like the ghost part in the kiln, or like do you know? Do you think you might have to do it again, or do you schedule I that totally in? I totally freak out, and and I, <laughs> I I and it's the worst part is it's a twelve-hour firing for the bigger pieces, and then you have to wait up to ten hours for it to cool down. You're just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, you know? And and uh, and sometimes it does like that. Those ghost ghost pieces, I was having technical difficulties with this with them, and there was just no explanation. It was just, what the heck has gone on? But I mean, what was it, happening? Were they cracking? Or um, yeah, it's this thing called shivering, and it's when um, the clay is shrinking too much, and the body of glaze is not able to adhere, and so it was literally coming off, and uh, only on one, not the other, and all the conditions were exactly the same. So there was. <laughs> just ghosts. What? Yeah, they had a spirit of their own. But, Haunted yeah. kiln. I always wonder because I could clearly not be a ceramicist. Like I could not handle that. Do you know Amanda Smith's work? She does these like slabs. They're sort of narrative slabs. So um, it's a big slab of clay, flat, usually in ovals, and then she'll draw on them oh. and she paints them in with glaze. But then the trees are actual like leaves, like three dimensional leaves. So it's sort of a combination of of um, 3D and 2D. They're really beautiful yeah, and crazy really stories, like really narrative, weird stories. But they're very, very intricate. And she'll get to that point, <laughs> put them in the kiln, and then she opens the kiln and it's shattered in half. Yeah. Take up painting. Like, what? <laughs> There's no way 
I could handle that. I would just be a wreck. I'd need to be medicated. I, I couldn't do it. Um, and so when I see your stuff on Instagram, and you know, you've got your, you've got your beluga with its crown and the thing with the stuff, I just think, I don't know. I, I couldn't handle the stress. I, I think sometimes I'm addicted to the adrenaline. That's what I was going to ask. Like gambling. <laughs> It's a High stakes work. And it's so contradictory what you think ceramic is. Ceramic's supposed to be like calming and peaceful and I think I push it to the parameters, but I'm sort of addicted to that, I think sometimes. But I have to keep it interesting and I keep trying to do new things with it and experiment with it and find out different methods I can use to get through the technical parts of it. Do you research historical stuff or have you already done like you already know that part or do you find yourself still researching? I always research. I'm, yeah. I'm sort of obsessed with information gathering. I, I research. I draw. I, and then still the pieces will change as I'm working on them. And I kind of go in with that thinking it's, I got to let the medium talk back to me too. And I can't control it. And sometimes the best work is when I just let it go and shut out everything in the world. And that's back to living on Bowen. I can, I can let that happen. Just look out the window and stare at the sky. And it just, it's so peaceful and quiet. And um, yeah, sometimes the pieces, I look back at them when they come out of the kiln and I feel like, where did you come from? Like, what, what is this all about? But it's kind of, do you sort of get into a zone when you just let it go and you're just working and now a flower shows up and maybe you hadn't planned for there to be any floral or whatever? Do you just sort of, does it feel almost meditative? For most of it, yes, I, and I try and allow myself to, to get into that and let go of the controlling of the medium. But I must say for bigger sculptures, I have to plan ahead. There's so many steps you have to take to avoid explosions, structural meltdowns, <laughs> warping, bazillion things. And so it's like designing the product before it's built, but then near the end, like kind of letting it talk back to me. Like these, That's I just wanted to be white. And it didn't work. <laughs> I always want everything just to be white. And then this decorative side of me comes out. And I can't hold it back. But that's the fun. So, Do you ever decorate cakes? I would love to. <laughs> I bet you'd be we, really we good do, at it. We do cupcake crazy times. <laughs> Are there ever any smoking babies on your cupcakes? <laughs> no. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we might have to call somebody. Um, okay, so you've got a big show on now. Do you have other things that are coming up? Like, I have other stuff coming up, but um, the, none of them are finalized yet. And are they? So, do you have good chunks of time in between things? It must take you forever to get everything ready for a show. Um, it does take a really long time, especially a solo show filling a gallery with work. So, this show that's up is is um, last year's show and this year. So old and not old, but like mm -hmm. you know, the new work is in there too. And um, yeah, it takes an awful lot of time to make the pieces. And what I do is I'll have one piece. I've started, I'll let it dry, you know, get a little bit more solid, and I'll go over to another piece. And I'm working on different pieces at the same time and just trying to push out as much as I can and still allow myself to be the creative person, not the producer, like mm -hmm. not a production person. But, you know, that's another thing I've been asked to make replicas of my work and ship it off and and I thought oh, maybe I could that would be really financially beneficial but it's just not where I want to be right now I don't want to mass produce this work I want to do individual pieces and I yeah you want to make art not products yeah yeah oh. and so these guys go off to school are you just are you just in the studio all day yeah 
Yeah. All day. Like nine to five or, and then they go to bed and you go back in there or what's your day like? Um, I, I, they come home from school, we hang out and have treats and tea and stuff like that and then I go back to the studio. Then dad comes home and I go back to the, st I'm usually in the studio. And then when it's bedtime, we all just spend our time together. Nice. Dad makes dinner. Yay, Dad. <laughs> um, okay, not so speedy speed round. Okay. Okay, coffee or tea? Both. How many a day? Um, a big coffee in the morning. My coffee cup's like this. <laughs> Did you make it? No, I oh. got it here in Victoria at a cool vintage shop. It's fantastic. And, um, but I do make cu um, cups. But, um, and then I have tea throughout the day. But I should probably cut back. <laughs> I just keep drinking coffee. I need coffee for every event I need to do. Like if I'm if I'm writing a post, I'm like, well, I should have a fresh cup of coffee for that. <laughs> and then and then that coffee's gone in the post, it's done, and then I have to do like a written interview and I'm like, well, you need a cup of coffee for that. <laughs> so then I have it then. And then if I'm gonna go into the studio, it's like well, you don't go in there empty-handed. <laughs> Got to make another one. So, so I thought I should ask other people how many. Is it because you can't sleep if you drink it in the afternoon? Yeah. What's yeah. your cutoff time for coffee? Do you have one? Oh, like I don't have one. Oh, you can still go to sleep? I was in Venice oh. last summer. I could have an espresso with dinner at 10 and then go to bed at 11. It's like my superpower. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And when people are like, oh, I, I, have to, I can't have a coffee past noon, I'm like, but what do you do at two, and then at four, and then at eight? Tea. Tea. With caffeine. I don't like tea. Oh, you don't like tea? Mm -mm. Uh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to say that in Victoria? Pop? Do you like, do you have sugared pop or anything for a super boost? No. A super boost? No, just coffee. But when I was in Venice, FYI, you ever go to Italy, I ordered a latte at, just after lunch. We'd had lunch, and then I ordered um, a latte, and I was called a barbarian. <laughs> the the waiter looked at the women that I was with, and they were Italian. The women, and they even kind of were like, Ugh. and I was like, oh. and I even tried to order in Italian and everything. I'm like, what? Did I offend them? Did I swear or something? And uh, he said something, something barbarian, and I was like, oh, I know what that means. And she, they were like, oh no 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 no, you can't order a latte afternoon. And I was like, why? And they said because there's too much milk in it, and you can't digest it properly with the food, so you can only order. You can have lattes in the morning, but you can't even order a cappuccino in the afternoon. Only an espresso or a macchiato. So then I changed things up the next day because I was like, I do not want to be a barbarian. So I don't know what they'd say if you asked for tea. Um, okay, see, this is why it's the not-so-speedy speed round. Um, oh, I already asked this. But, okay, if something breaks in the kiln, do you A, cry, B, swear, C, all of the above? All of the above. Yeah. Have you cried before? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen it happen. Yeah. Okay, and then this is one of my favorite ones always to ask. The worst summer job you ever had. Oh, oh! I, when I was in Emily Carr, I did the college pro painting. And we, oh. were, we were on the swing stage on this building, and, and our bosses were gone. I was with, like, a scientist and a biologist. We were all just hanging out going, what do we do now? We he's gone and we need to move it over so we went and moved it over ourselves we went up on the roof moved the ropes moved our swing stage over and and it actually fell while we were on it we crashed into this concrete wall and broke it and we got into so much trouble 
But anyway, that was the worst job. <laughs> did you ever do that? Like, did you ever do that again another summer or no? I did decorative painting like as as a way to make money when I got out of school. It was that would it was be good. really fun. Yeah, I love painting walls. I got a job with College Pro too. When oh, I, did when you? I, yeah, when I right after I graduated <laughs> from UVic, and they were like, "Well, you have a BFA in painting, right?" And I was like. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> How much money did I spend to do a BFA in painting and now I'm going to paint a house. I got the job and I quit two days later before I even went to one of the sites. I was like, you know, I, I, I can't. I can't do it. And I moved home to, my parents lived in Guelph and I moved home and lived in their basement and cried. Aww. Worked out okay. Yeah, that worked out. Um, okay, that's all my questions for you. Do you guys have questions for Susanna? Or we can do it all at the end? Collectively say, oh. I'm curious about where you source your floral images. Um, where you, for, yeah, I'll just say it again um, so the mic picks it up. Where you source your floral images? The, 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 these are decals. They're, they're from old factories. Shutting down, I find them. Or um, I go, I can get them online. Um, these are from China. Um, some of them are so old, they actually crumble in my hands. I, and, and some of them don't adhere. There's some work here you can see where it didn't stick. It's just get they just get really old, but they're wild and crazy. And, and what's the method for applying them? You soak them in warm water and allow a layer to come off till you get the decal in your hand. You um, put it on, sponge out the air bubbles, and put it into the kiln at a low firing. Uh, they're pretty toxic when they're firing, so you have to keep the um, lid of the kiln open somewhat and um, leave the room. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, should we tell them about the email that we got about these? <laughs> oh, you go, well, yeah. So she, this is why she's crazy, and I don't think she sleeps, but she says that she does. So when was that? Like four days ago? Yeah. Uh, she messages the two of us and says, oh, I was thinking of them. Um, and they weren't done. They were just like... She's just like, I just did this last night. Yeah, and they weren't like, they weren't, um, there was no blue on them or anything yet when you sent the picture. And she said, um, I was thinking of bringing these three jugs to the talk. Do you think I should do that? And we were like, okay. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I made these gifts for you made, last night. Yeah. I know. Of I was course. like, I didn't make anything for anybody, but okay. <laughs> and then we show up today and they're all done and amazing and crazy. Like, these are just from a couple days ago. <laughs> and I love them so much. Aww, and thanks. one day, I wrote about Susanna a while ago. And artists do not need to send me things when I write about them. That is not why I write about them. But if they say, I'd like to send you something, I never say no, because that would be crazy. And so she sent me this amazing little um, bud vase. And it's a baby's arm, a little baby doll arm, um, with Queen Elizabeth on the side, because I love Queen Elizabeth. And she's smoking. Oh. <laughs> Which is even better. Because uh, yeah. Danielle loves the queen. I love yeah. the queen. I, I actually found that piece here in Victoria. It was a piece of Wedgwood, and I took the I took a mold off the queen and made it for Danielle. It's that so cool. And they filled, the kids filled it with candy for my son. So I opened the box. There's all these, I think they were gobstoppers or something. Yep, they were gobstoppers. And uh, Charlie was thrilled. He'd never had a gobstopper before. He was thrilled. And then I got the bud vase. Like, how nice. But that was that was not so much for the article. It was because you you motivated me to get out of mummy dumb, and and work. You know, I felt like I was such a long journey to make my kids, and twins are really a lot 
I can't sugarcoat it. When they're first born, like I was like, I have to be super mom. I have to breastfeed both of them and, and feed them perfectly and do everything right. And I, it's exhausting and I couldn't do my art really. And then I started listening to Daniel's podcast and I was like, other people are doing it. Like, I'm just gonna squeak back in there. The first thing I made, you know, was just, was this giant rosary, it's like 11 feet tall. And I go in every day, I make a bead and I'd stamp in it something good that was happening, something that I'm happy about. Wow. And, um, and then at the end, I, I put it all together as a rosary, and I was like, yes, it's my first sculpture. Like, it took me a long time, but it was just me squeaking back in the time that I could and still being able to be an artist and allow myself that side of my life while I was just getting them through the baby time. Well, we were talking about that yesterday at Girl Crush because so many of the women that were there are moms, and we were all at different stages. Like, some people had really little kids, some people have 20-year-olds, you know, a bunch of us had, like, 11, 12-year-olds. And the thing is, if you are a mom with really little ones, you feel like you're never going to have your life again. You feel like you're never going to have five minutes to even go pee by yourself, let alone make an 11-foot rosary. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it's just so important to know that, A, you don't have to do it when they're babies. They, they are going to grow and grow up, and you will have time again. But if, if you have that desire to make when they're little, do one bead at a time. Yeah. Do a half an hour drawing every day. Like, that's enough, yeah. and that's good. And I, I think it's so important for people to know that and to cut yourself some slack. Like, that's what we kept saying. It's just like, cut yourself some slack. You don't have to breastfeed perfectly and, you know, show it the MoMA in the same month. Yeah. yeah. Um, but one thing I was going to say I forgot to throw in is that we met at Opus. Yeah. And I was doing a talk there a couple of years ago, and we met, and I'd seen your, I recognized your name right away because I'd seen your work, but your photography of your work was not great. Do you remember me yeah, saying yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because... It, especially photographing white ceramics is really hard. Like, how do you show the detail when you've got a white background and blah, blah, blah. And so I said, I love your work, but you need to re-photograph it. Yeah. And she said, okay. And you did. Yeah. And it's so good now. And um, I know, like, so I instantly wrote about you, but I know you got picked up by a bunch of other blogs and stuff. And so as an artist, that's like a huge thing because I didn't want to write about it because I knew it wouldn't look like a good it wouldn't look like a nice looking post on my site, but it also wouldn't do her any service because it just didn't do the work justice. And I knew that if it was photographed properly, people would truly understand what this work was. And I give that as an example a lot because it's just that little bit of difference. So like pay somebody to photograph it or take a photography course and mm -hmm. learn how to do it yourself. And shadow them when they're doing it and learn what they're doing. Yeah, so that you can do it and not spend tons of money every single yeah. time later. But um, So what did you do? Did you hire someone or did you figure out I, how to I do it? I hired someone and now we've learned how to do it ourselves because there, there is a specific way to photograph white ceramic and ways to make it look better. Mm -hmm. Every, every medium is going to have a different way, like a great painting. You could almost take it out on a day like this and yeah. make sure that you got the right sun direction. But ceramics got so much of a reflection. But another thing I did was um, I'm a member of Thrive Art Studios, and Tara, who's one of the founding members, did a consult with me, and she's got a graphic design background. So she took all my images and reconfigured my Instagram and said, this is how it could look. And I was blown away. And that changed everything for me, too. It's just somebody with a fresh eye could go, well, just think about, you know. Well, and all your details. Like, when you zoom in on your details on Instagram, like, that's the, like, ooh. Mm -hmm. 
You know, like that's yeah. the thing that people are like, 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 like. <clears throat> yeah, and, and in process, people yeah. love seeing you while you're working or what you're doing or the stages. And I, I, you know, I said earlier that Bowen's pretty isolating for me and I'm used to being in an artist co-op with 30 other artists and this is like massive change. And Instagram for me is very, like my way of socializing, socializing and reaching out going, Hi, I'm here. Like, you know, it's amazing. I just love it. At first, I op I opened Instagram um, t to tell a story, to to tell the story of the process, of what it is making these pieces in in the studio. But now, it's, Instagram's amazing for artists and everyone. Okay, my turn. <laughs> Where? <are you? laughs> I never get interviewed. I don't like this. <laughs> well, the most exciting thing that's happening for Danielle, I think, and I'm so excited about, is your big important art book. So I can't wait. I love the cover of it. <laughs> that's my painting on the cover of it. Which is even crazy. That no, it was an old painting. But um, yeah, so this is the newest book. It comes out on October second. 2018 at a bookstore near you. Um, yeah, so it's called A Big Important Art Book, Now with Women, because I have a lot of big important art books that have no women, so I thought it would be really funny, and I floated that title to the publisher thinking they would go, ha, 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 no, and they loved it, and they're doing it, and then they said, we want your art on the cover, which was another really scary thing. And so they said, well, we're thinking maybe like abstracty something. So I just took a whole bunch of photos of random bits that I had around and just so they could place it. And um, that wasn't what it was supposed to be. And so they, they placed one and then they were like, okay, great. So can you do, you know, a painting like this? And so I did all these paintings. I think I sent them 14 paintings. And then they went back to the random shot of the little corner of some throwaway piece. Oh, I love it. But I really like it. I'm yeah. really happy because they wanted me to go all bright and pretty and whatever, and I did, but then it didn't look like a big important art book. It looked like, oh, cute, girls are in this book. And I was like, mm, no, 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 I don't want girl power. I want, like, professional women artists whose stories should be documented are in this book. So I wanted it to be not cute and girl powery. I wanted it to be real. And they agreed, and so it's a charcoal cover, and so it's a little bit more big and important. And then there's projects at the end of every chapter. For yeah, well, the way I wanted to do it is, um, the background of this is that I, when I was studying at UVic in art history, um, I was so excited. I came from Summerland, from a little town where, you know, I didn't have... I'd never learned about art history, and here I was in these classes, and you know the big slides are going by, and we're learning about Picasso, and we're learning about all these greats, and I was so just enamored and like a little sponge soaking it all up, and then I was just like, no, maybe two or three weeks into the class, a lot of slides had gone by, and there hadn't been one woman, and here I was studying to be a woman artist when I grew up, and I was like, did um, are there any women? Did no women ever make art? Like, what's going on? And the prof said, you know, yes, but they were just, they weren't considered important enough to be documented. So there's just no information about them, which filled me with rage. Um, I was about 19, I guess. And um, so anyway, all these years later, I've always still had that in my mind. And 
when I write Dolls Curator, I mean, I probably write, and I don't mean to, but I, it's probably like 70% women that I write about. Um, just again, I think because I'm a female artist, so I'm very drawn to what other women are doing and their sensibilities. And um, I've had a few people go, do you hate men or something? I'm like, no, I love men. But I just am very drawn to female um, made art. And so same with the podcast. There's way more women I've interviewed. And again, I think I'm just interested in their stories. So when the opportunity came to write this book, um, it made me think of being an art history student and not having those stories. And I thought, well, these guys are all alive. So I can not only find out if they used oil or acrylic, but I can find out, like, did they drop out of high school? Like, I can find out all of these, like, nitty, like how many coffees did they have a day? <laughs> I can find out really nitty-gritty stuff. And so, um, but at the same time, I wanted to pay homage to these historical women who did pave the way for us, whether it was documented or not. And I wanted to inspire artists of the future, like little girls now, or even women our age now who have never made art because they didn't think they could. I want them to be the next great artists of the future. So I thought, how do I ram all of that into one book? So the way I've done it is uh, it's 15 chapters, and I've broken it into sort of genres or themes. So like there's a chapter about narrative work. There's a chapter about portraiture. Um, and so each chapter starts with a project for the artists of the future. Mm. So it'll start with a, a portrait project. Um, and then it's like, would you like to see some examples of that? So then I write about three contemporary women who do portraiture, but in very different ways, just so that you don't think a portrait is this, you know, and that, that that's all a portrait can be. I wanted to show that a portrait can be like this, or like this, or like this. Um, and then sprinkled throughout their stories are little sidebar did you knows about historical women who also did portraiture. Um, but like kind of cool facts that you might not realize. Like there was this one um, artist, a Scottish artist named Margaret MacDonald, and whose work looks very much like um, Gustav Klimt's work. And if you saw her work, you would say, oh, clearly she ripped off Klimt. But no, no, everybody, it was the other way around. Mm -hmm. So he uh, basically studied her and uh, loved her work and she had a studio where she taught, and um, she was sort of one of the groundbreaking people of art deco art, and she did the gold leaf and all of this stuff, and he loved it, and I think he maybe even studied with her, I'm not sure, and he went off and became super famous. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's actually a, a museum, I think in Glasgow, that where they show their work together so that you can see that she influenced him because you would never know otherwise. So it's little stories like that. They're sort of sprinkled throughout. And the idea is I just want to give people this history to know that women have been paving the way for a really long time. They're currently still rocking out. And like the stories don't focus on the fact that they're women. They're just artists who happen to be women. Um, I write about their struggles and about the fact that they didn't just breeze through and become successful working artists. I talk about the fact that quite a few of them are mothers. Um, some of them with four kids, because I hear a lot of people saying, well, I can't be an artist because I'm a mom and I just don't have time. And it's just like, well, I call BS on that because you totally can. Here's proof. Um, and, and so. You could use them to make your art. Too. Yeah. You could take body casts of your kids. Yes, you can. <laughs> Look at their cute little legs. Do They're something very like that. Handy. Yeah. So that, it was this huge passion project of mine. I was so pumped. I did my pitch, I was ready to roll. And uh, I was turned down by five out of six publishing houses. And this is my fourth book. 
and my other books have sold really, really well, and you'd think I'd be a safe bet to gamble on. Uh, and, and five of the six said no, basically they didn't think a book about women artists would sell. <laughs> so I went to my local bakery and bought Nanaimo bars and Rage ate them in my car by myself. <laughs> I drove down to the lake with my Nanaimo bars and cried and ate them all, and I was just so... I felt so paralyzed because I was like, this is a good idea. And <clears throat> this, these are stories that should be told. And why doesn't anybody want to tell them? And then Running Press out of Philly in New York said, we want to tell them. And they have just like been, they've just let me do whatever I want. And it is the most, I just saw the first um, design comps. I cried. I was out in public. I was in a cafe doing some work. And the email came, eating Nanaimo bar. No, I don't have to. I'm not angry anymore. Um, <laughs> That's really not healthy living advice. Don't rage eat Nanaimo bars, everybody listening at home. Um, unless you really need to. Um, so, yeah, I'm working in this cafe, and the first, the PDF comes through from the publisher, and they're like, okay, here's the first chapter mocked up, if you, you, know, if you can just send us feedback. I've never worked with this publisher before. I've never worked with their designer before. I have been a creative director in advertising and design for 18 years, so I'm kind of a high-maintenance client. And... Um, so I opened it ready to like change everything and I cried because it I didn't change anything. It's so beautiful and the I mean it looks like a big important art book. Oh, I can't wait. Oh my god. And it's hardcover and it's beautiful and uh, yeah, so it'll be out in October. Yeah. Thank you. That was a really long answer. That was that amazing cuz I was going to ask you why now why this time in history? Well, see, and that's so funny because when I said I want to do this, this was before Me Too, this was before Time's Up, like none of that had really, it was about to happen in a few months, but that wasn't happening. So everyone's saying, no, nobody will be interested in a book about women. You know, and then to have all of this stuff happen and to have this huge wave of Me Too and like women standing together and strong and... I feel like we're on this weird precipice. Like, it just feels like, okay, finally there's momentum. And um, literally, the universe is looking out for me because the timing of this coming out mm -hmm. could not be more perfect. Mm -hmm. I That is not why I wanted to do it. I, I would never want people to think that I jumped on this, like, woman bandwagon. And, like, I was pitching this way, way before. Um, and, I, oh, yeah, and I should say, like, you know, in all of this, when I'm pitching it and nobody's saying yes, I thought, oh, you know, this is coming from me graduating 23 years ago. Like, maybe the art departments aren't like this anymore. Like, maybe nobody's putting up their hand and saying, where are the women? Maybe they're teaching about the women, and I'm just old and don't realize that. No, they still, in university, unless you take, like, a women in arts class, they still are using the same textbook. So it's, there's no new, you know, and there's, there's no new anything being taught about. So you'll learn about Frida Kahlo and Georgia O'Keeffe and maybe Mary Cassatt, and that's it. Um, so then I felt even more empowered, because I was like, okay, good. Like, it's still not being talked about. Um, and now my agent is asking me to get ready for the next book, because I've already, I've handed this in, running presses, you know, designing it and printing it, and then I can pitch another book come fall. So she's like, what's your new book going to be about? And I was like, I, I don't know. Um, but I feel like I'm not, you know, she's like, oh, maybe it can be about kids, or it could be this or that. I feel like I'm not done with this, so it almost feels like volume two, mm -hmm. volume three, volume four, volume five. Like, there's a lot of catching up to do, mm -hmm. and I'm not done talking about this yet. And I think 
Um, I always say whenever I do book tours for my other books, the really interesting part is when I stop talking and talk to you guys afterwards because there's me too stories and there's this and there's that and it's like, yeah, when I was in school, this and it, I gather it all up and there's the next book whether I like it or not, right? It's just all this amazing energy and information that's presented and I can't wait to go and talk about this book in the fall on the book tour and just see what the people tell me after. Because when I talked about Creative Block and Inner Critic, the stories that came back were just amazing. Um, so I'm really excited to hear what the stories that people have for me about this are going to be. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that'll be volume two. And when the kids talk back to you when, they're, when that book's in all the schools. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite is talking to high schools and universities. Um, because I wish somebody had talked to me then. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish I had known that I wasn't so alone or that, you know, other people hear their inner critic or that other people were wondering where the women are mm -hmm. or, because I didn't know any of that. I just thought I was all alone, mm -hmm. so. I, I was told that my grad ceremonies from Emily Carr by our class president, who was a woman, that 1% of us would make a living off our art. I was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Four and a half years of art school, thanks for that little nugget. Yeah, as I'm walking out the door with my diploma. Oh. Did you cash all my checks? Yeah. Oh, good. Can I ask a question about your creative process? Because I think it's amazing that you're switching from being a visual artist to a writer artist. What's it? And does your brain switch gears? Like when you're in the zone to be writing, do you do something different than when you're in the zone to visual art? Yeah, I, um, well, it's so funny because I've just been able to say out loud when, you know, somebody says, what do you do? I practiced at a party and said, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Waited to see if the sky fell or anything. Um, that's really weird to me because I was not trained as a writer, so I find it really, you know, I don't find writing hard at all. And I think it's because my diploma doesn't say writer. I think if it did, I would like be all angsty about it. But because I am not a writer, I feel like, well, I'm just going to wing it and see what happens. Where my art, I get a lot more tight because I'm supposed to be an artist, I think. But I have a little studio in my house that's my, that's my art studio. And I go in there and I cut my little collage things out and I paint and stuff in there. I kind of feel like a different person than when I'm writing. And so writing, I have a, we call it the book nook. <laughs> There's this really weird alcove. We live in a hundred year old house. Our bedroom has this really weird three foot long alcove to go where the window is. And there's nothing, like we had a chair there that no one ever sat in. So I bought a tiny little desk for 10 bucks from the thrift shop and jammed it in there. And I sit up there and listen to classical music and write. Mm. And I always wear a cozy sweater because I imagine that authors wear cozy sweaters. Oh. Greg, my husband actually calls them my author sweaters. I have about three of them and they're total nice and kind of fuzzy. And it's just like, oh, it's like, oh, the author's heading into the nook. <laughs> and of course I have to get a cup of coffee because I'm adding in there. Um, so I feel, and I can't write anywhere else. Mm. I, I don't know why it's like become this thing. It's like I have to be there because it's quiet and I'm like, blinders on and I can't um, where in my art studio when I'm making art I've got music like you know like pop music playing instead of just quiet classical and I'm kind of in and out of there and I have to go get more water and I you know it's a little bit more I don't know loose or I don't know a bit more all over the map where writing feels more serious. One of the things about your art that you do that I love the most is 
the little lines that you put underneath it. Oh, that's, that's what makes me laugh. The, the titles are I, amazing. I mean, I love when you have Di and Charles on and the Queen and these, you know, 70s men with paint coming out of their head. But then I read what you've written and I'm just like, oh my God, that's so good. Well, you know, it's so funny because I really love, when I wrote Big Jerk, I loved writing. And that had nothing to do with my art. Like, there's never been any writing involved with my art. But I loved it so much that when I started doing this new series of collages, I didn't want them to be Untitled 1, Untitled 2. I thought, well, I love writing so much. And when I make these things, you know, I'll, what I often do is I put down a whole bunch of papers at once. I'll do all different brush strokes, little dots, whatever. And then I go through my bowl of cutout people and see who belongs where. And they don't all belong... That, you know, sometimes yeah. nobody oh. belongs anywhere. And so, but as soon as I put down the right guy or girl, that story pops into my head. And I like laugh out loud by myself, like a crazy person. I thought in it was the studio. people first, but it's the blobs first. It's the blobs first. Because awesome. otherwise they get too tight. Like if I've got a person and I want to create the perfect blob, it will never ever work. So I make the blobs let them dry, and then I come back with the people. But your blobs match the people so perfectly. that All the colors, everything ties together perfectly. I have a lot of people that I can yeah. I, have a, I have a gigantic bowl. And um, whenever I'm not in the mood to be creative, but I've booked studio time, I just go and I cut stuff out. Because at one point, I'm going to need a perfectly cut out yeah. Prince Charles. Might as well get him done. And I just throw them in the... And I've got, like, folders of, like, Charles, Liz, little ladies, little men, couples... Hawaiians. Like I've got it all like from, yeah, so that I can just go and grab them and throw them all down. Um, but yeah, the story will pop into my mind the minute, it's like matchmaking. The minute the blob and the person matches, the, the story pops into my head. And I was told at university, um, I'm paraphrasing, but the general gist was basically it's bad enough that you're a woman um, because I was making funny art and they said it's bad enough that you're a woman. Like that's going to be hard enough being an artist. But if you do humor-based work too, like you're done. Like, like you can't, you know. Yeah, so those are two strikes against you. You're female and you're trying to be funny. So I took all of the humor out of my work because I wanted to be a serious artist. But I am not a serious person. And I've always been hilarious. And, um, and you know, artists are supposed to put themselves into their work. So I was trying to be angsty, and I was trying to find this sadness that I didn't have. Um, I was trying to draw on terrible experiences that I hadn't had to make real art. And I was just like, oh, it was exhausting to the point where I just didn't make art anymore. And then, um, you know, writing these books and trying to practice what I preach, I was like, okay, I need to be making art again. What is that, though? Like, what do I want to be making? And then I interviewed Wayne White. Does anybody know who Wayne White is? Oh my God, I love him. Do you remember Pee-wee's Playhouse? <laughs> Wayne did all of the puppets and a lot of the voices on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Um, and now he's a painter. Lives in LA, he's from Chattanooga. But he does these hilarious, he finds vintage paintings at the thrift shop, like the, the print, the lithograph prints framed, all tacky. And then he does words on them. And they're hilarious and inappropriate and curse-filled and funny. And so the L.A. art scene was like, just thought it was a joke. And they're like, no, you can't. This isn't real art because it's funny. And Wayne was like, I don't care. You know, and so he just still put it out there. And um, he was highly criticized at first, but he just didn't care. And then now his paintings sell for so much money and he shows all over the world. And he's amazing. So I had him on the podcast and I said, you know, like, how do you, 
how do you deal with like with people thinking that art can't be funny? And um, okay, close your ears, you guys. And he said, he said, why? Well, just say. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I can say that. And so I got off of that. That was December 11th, two years ago. I got off of that podcast, and on December 21st, Charlie's um, Christmas break started, and I decided I was going to do a collage a day throughout the um, the. Christmas break, and I was lying in bed that morning. I hadn't touched paint in 20 years because my prophet Uvic had said, quote, you should never paint again in front of my entire class. And uh, so I never had. So I was lying in bed that morning. I was going to be funny and make these collages. And I had this picture in my mind. I just was kind of just waking up of a blob of paint with a little dude standing on it. And I said to Greg, I have to buy paint. So I went to the art, because all mine had all turned to plastic. It was 20 years old. I still had it all, but it was just hardened. So I went and bought new paint, terrified, pulled out my brushes from my undergrad, like 20-year-old brushes, and did my first stroke of paint. And it was terrifying. But I put a little guy on it. And I and a title came into my head, and I it was funny, and sometimes there's swear words in it, and I had never been so happy. I hadn't had that much fun making art since I was probably 12, mm. and I didn't show anybody for a long time because I was just enjoying myself. And I thought I don't want other opinions. I don't want to hear that it shouldn't be funny. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear oh that looks like so and so. Like I don't want to know. I just want to enjoy making again you know, for the first time in 20 years. And I did, and then finally started sharing it. I think people feel when they look at your work that you're really enjoying it. Like they, they They're right. That. I have one of Danielle's pieces in my studio. It's Barb and Candace are balancing this life, this life something act, and the colors are spectacular. And I wanted to ask you how you know about combining the colors you do. They're so unexpected. So you'd have a beige and a gray with a bright pink and a red dot. And it just looks magnificent all together. I think it's my... Um, so after I, I was told never paint again, after spending four years at university, I went to design school. I was told by Elspeth Pratt. I don't know if anybody knows Elspeth. She, she taught at UVic when I was there, and then um, Emily Carr, and now I think she's at um, SFU. And she had pulled me aside in third year and said, I think you need to go to design school. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm trying to be an artist. And she said, no, like, finish your degree. But she's like, you're just a designer. Like, your compositions and your color choices and the fact that you always want to use text. Like, she's like, I think you're just a graphic designer at heart. So I ended up going to design school, and she was right. Like, it's top of my class, got a job right out of school. Um, and so I think that my color choice, it all just comes from working in advertising for so long and playing with palettes. Like, that's one of my favorite things is just color combinations. Um, and so, yeah, to be able to bring them into my art now after ignoring it for so long, it's so fun. And, like, blobbing on the paint now and not being afraid of paint. Like, being, you know, spending 20 years being literally, like, crying when I bought paint. I was here. Remember when I came to yeah. do the Quench Talk? I went to the Opus down there because that's where I bought all my first-year art supplies was Opus Victoria. So I went back to the scene of the crime to buy more paint. And I didn't even, this was before I even started doing these pieces. So I bought all of that paint when I was here. So excited. I was going to 
you know, I was telling everyone else to paint and face their fears, and I was going to do it. I got all that beautiful paint home. I did one piece, then wrote on it in white paint, this sucks, and never, and didn't paint again for another three years, four years. So the fact that there's paint on my art is, for me, is like an insane victory. <laughs> it's so good. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just realizing, like, what I tell everybody else is, like, there's no mistakes, you know, like... Just play around, and if it turns into a hot mess, like, recycle it. You know, it's not the end of the world. I, I just thought if I made a mistake, like, I don't know, I, I don't know what I thought would happen. Be struck down by lightning? I don't know what I thought. Um, and so I just make mistakes, and I, then I put some water on it, and I see what happens when some pink touches it, and it blooms out, and then I add a little bit of this, and sometimes it's miraculous and amazing, and sometimes it's horrible, and... Um, I'll very often toss those horrible ones in my horrible pile. And then later, if I find the right cutout person, it's actually perfect. So um, there's an artist named Tina Berning from Germany, and she's amazing. She does fashion illustration and layers and, oh, inky and washy and perfect. But I had her on the podcast. She has three boxes in her studio where she keeps all these things. She's got a box that says, not so good, not so bad, and crap. <laughs> and she puts all these things in her, you know, in her three boxes. She's like, I don't even throw the crap away because she said maybe the crap can get flipped over and the ink will be coming through and in a beautiful way and you could use that for something. Or sometimes she'll take um, 12 pieces from the crap box and staple them all together and now she's got a large scale piece and she does a new piece on top of it. So she's like, not even the crap is garbage. And after, you know, that kind of takes 100 pounds off your shoulders when you hear that. It's like... You know, if you don't make the crap, then you don't have this beautiful base for some other amazing thing. So mm -hmm. I try and embrace that where I used to be like, oh my God, if that paint touches this canvas or this paint, like, it better be perfect or else. And now I'm like, eh, it might suck. And that's kind of okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the mistakes are what you learn from. Yeah, always. That's, that's your best tool. So you may see an artist with their final products, but there's so many mistakes behind actually getting to that final piece that they've learned from. Yeah. I've, I've been in the studio where I don't know where to go with a piece, and I'll wait and wait and wait because I'm scared. I'm scared I'll F it up, and I have to get it done because I know I've got a deadline. I'm just like, just go and be brave and don't care if you make mistakes. Just freaking do it. And sometimes these things come up, and I'm like, that's not so bad, actually. Because <laughs> I just had to go through and almost go into the zone with, with yeah. just courage and just go. Because, yeah, it was... Like, what's the worst thing that's going to yeah. happen? Learn something new. Yeah. Push a new parameter. Yeah. Go to a new level. It's not bad. That's a great segue to one of the questions I had for both of you that I emailed to you. And that we talk about a lot here at Quench is that because um, a lot of people say, "Oh my gosh, so you're an entrepreneur? How did you start this?" And first of all, I hate the word entrepreneur. I don't know, especially because I just can't spell it. It's probably not um, There's a U in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Frenchy somewhere. Anyway, um, and then uh, people have been, you know, say, "Have you ever done this before?" And I used to say, "No," and then I stopped and I was like, "Well, wait a second. I've been a musician." for 20 years and a performer for 20 years. And to be a musician, you have to you, you have to write what you want to write, you have to record it, you have to do all these things, and then you have to get it out there. So you are the business behind the, the art. 
And so that's my question for you guys, because I think that a lot of people perceive artists as the starving artists, but really that's not the case. We're really the, the instigators, the doers, the ones who, you know, you're really the ones who get things going. So how do you mesh that business side, which can often be seen as a negative, with your creative side? <laughs> What's the business of art? Like, how do you balance the business of art? Yeah. Do you want, do you want to go? Ahead? No, I was going to let you go. Um, the business of art, um, I, I, think, I think I use my film background time as money sometimes. Um, and I know that sounds cold and callous, but I can't mess up. Like, and I think having kids makes me just like, hit that ground running, you gotta go. You don't have very much time. They're gonna come home from school. It, I can't clean up my shelves on my studio. I gotta make something right now. And uh, that's really pushes me um, uh, about the business. But one thing I was gonna say about the business of art right now, we're in a really amazing time using social media. Instagram is free. And you can put up whatever, however you want. And the weirder, the better, maybe. But there's so, such a gift we have at this time. And I think everybody can use it and use it to their best ability. So get, get a consult and get someone to tell you how to tweak it and get your Instagram going to your Facebook. And, and uh, that's one amazing thing that really helps artists right now do their business. Um, and um, also, there's so many amazing programs you can use for your bookkeeping and that are easy and accessible for artists to use. And um, even with our iPhones, we can take incredible photos with our iPhones, which we couldn't do. Like back when I was in art school, we had to have, do slides of our work. But I just think that's one major thing. And a major th other thing that's important about being an artist in business is being kind with what you do and sharing what you have and everything you do comes back to you and staying kind in your business and your art. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, some some artists are just naturally good at marketing and, um, you know, selling their work, and some people just aren't. And I'm one of those people. I find it really hard. Um, I can jump up and down and, and um, tell you all about Giles Curator. I am so proud of that, easy to promote. I will go anywhere and talk any. And then you ask me to talk about my art, and it's like, oh, no, no, no. And I just started selling, you know, and I found it really hard because, you know, people say, oh, I'm really interested in this piece. And I'm like, well, you can just have it. That's not a good sales model. <laughs> you just have it. You can just have it. Um, and so I actually got some really great advice from Jamie from Thrive. And she said, like, write a price list. Just decide ahead of time before anybody calls you how much, you know, your 8 by 10s are, how much this is, how much, like, just figure it all out. And then when somebody calls and says, I'm interested in this piece, you can be like, okay, well, it's an 8 by 10, so let me check my list. Oh, 8 by 10s are 275. Instead of humming and hawing for each piece, it's just like, oh, I'm not sure. Let me consult my price list. You know, and it's the price list's fault. It's not your fault. And then if they want to buy it, they're welcome to. And if they don't want to, they don't have to. And that took a lot of weight off of me because now it's on the price list, you know. Um, but as far as Jealous Curator goes, like that you know, for me, it's easy to make a business because it's not, it's, it's, it's not my art. Um, I mean, that said, I've been a graphic designer for 18, I just quit a year and a half ago. Like, I have been a full-time 
full-time job designer, full-time jazz curator, full-time mom. Um, and I didn't sleep, and I felt like I was going crazy. So I finally quit designing because Greg, my husband was doing our taxes a couple of years ago, and Jill's Curator was just, I mean, it's my passion, and it just was on the side. Granted, I'd written three books and whatever, but it was on the side. And he was doing our taxes, and he said, do you know how much you made last year from Jill's Curator? And I, I didn't think anything, you know, I think I guessed $6,000. And he was like, ah, and it was much, much, much more than that. And I was like, it was good for like a small town salary. And I was like, what? And he goes, I know, just imagine if you were actually trying. Because I wasn't. Like, I, I wasn't paying attention. And so I was like, it gave me that like, oh, okay, like I could actually really do this. And we do. We live in a small town, so we don't have, you know, big city property taxes. We don't have a lot of that. So, you know, small town salary. I, could, I can do it. Um, and so I quit design, which was a tiny bit scary. But... Um, I love this so much, and when people ask what I do, it's such a weird, you know, you can't just say, dentist. It's like, well, <laughs> author, artist, curator, lady, I don't know. Um, so, but I pinch myself all the time that I've managed to create this weird career out of these, this melange of stuff I love. Like, I wake up every morning, like, ready to go, whether that's studio time, whether that's writing, whether that's working on getting a podcast ready, whether that's prepping for a workshop or getting ready to go do a speaking gig. Like, uh, and there's a lot of coffee for all of those things I need to do. And so, yeah, I love it all. I kind of can't believe I've turned it into a business, but I think it comes from passion, you know? I've had so many people say, well, I was thinking of starting a blog, and I know that the design bloggers get a lot of money for advertising, and they do, um, but I've said to people, like, do you like design? <laughs> because if your jam is rock gardens, like, you should write about rock gardens, because you're going to attract, you might not think there's a lot of money in rock gardens, but you're going to attract like-minded people, you're going to attract, like, things that have to do with what you love, and then you kind of can turn that into a weird career. Um, so it's the same thing, like, you know, people always wondered why I don't have ads on my site. Like, you could be monetizing, why aren't you monetizing? So it's like, oh, I don't want to. I, you know, I want my site to be like a gallery. I want people to come and see the work. I don't want mattress.com blinking on the side. I just want it to be quiet and lovely. And um, I've always seen my blog as, as my calling card as like an online resume basically, like here's my taste, here's what I love, here's how I talk, here's what I think, now you can hire me for other things, you know, and that's kind of worked for me and um, it's been very organic, there was no plan, but it's kind of come around, <laughs> yeah. Do you have two leaner dogs? Yes. If they had to write a reference letter for you, what would they say? <laughs> Very good at tummy rubs. <laughs> Always provides kibble on time. They hang out with me in my studio all the time. I have a little space. They're really old. Um, one of my they're almost 14 and 12, so I have a little space heater that I use as bribery to bring them into the studio. And Stella, she's a 14-year-old, she lies... Like, but that's where, she's like a centimeter away from the heater. I don't know how she doesn't catch on fire. And so she lies and is cozy with me. So I think that they, you know, they watch me work. I think they know I have good work ethic. I think they'd probably throw that on me. <laughs> Do you guys have any questions? We covered it all. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much. Oh, that was awesome. I loved hearing how the two of you can bounce off each other. It was wonderful. I learned a lot and I really admire the work that both of you do. I have no idea how you can visually create what you do. It's and we really love this space here. Thank it's you. Beautiful. The next yeah, one's going to be you. amazing. Um, so, yeah, and thanks everybody for coming. Stick around for some more. Eat some sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I love that. And I'm just going to put it out there. I think there need to be more live podcasts in the future. I may have to work that into the book tour this fall. Note to self, make that happen. Thank you so much to Susanna for answering my questions and for asking me all of hers. Thank you so, so much to Club Quench for hosting this lovely Sunday morning event. And to Andrew Lloyd and Nick Francis, who actually recorded this and made sure <laughs> that it all worked from a tech point of view. Their links, along with Club Quench's link, is on my site right now at the bottom of Susanna's post. So go and check that out. Of course, big thanks to Sachi Art and Thrive Mastermind for supporting this episode. And of course, you. Thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.